as we turn now back to 1 John chapter 4, we find a text, as all, as all passages do, magnifying the grace of God. This one especially uh, is penetrating. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we, are, we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Amen. Was well, I was considering the passage from last week that was about false teachers, as you remember, uh, and, and just the seriousness of that passage. And, and then I look at uh, these next eight verses beginning in verse 7, and I start thinking to myself, isn't it a bit strange, a little bit odd, to have these verses about false teachers and antichrists followed up by verses that describe, define, demonstrate love? And I'm, I'm thinking, what a strange transition. Why would John directly pivot from the topic of false teachers into defining God's love? And, and in fact, uh, none of the resources that I research or commentaries that I looked into addressed this point of this transition. But as I continue to prepare and uh, as we studied false teachers again last Sunday night, I believe the answer dawned on me. We saw a, a three-minute video clip for those that were there about a false teacher who was ranting against Christians saying that we are not loving. And I thought, you know, that happens all the time. False prophets, false teachers of all types, constantly accuse Christians, especially those who are committed to the truths of the Bible, were accused of not being loving. It's an accusation we have to answer. Uh, no Christian wants to be loving. I don't. I know you don't either. And since sinners have not changed at all in the last 2,000 years, it's more than reasonable to expect that John anticipated that as he identified and he called out antichrists and false teachers who had infiltrated the church, when he called them out in this letter, and when it was then read aloud in the churches, that some of those false teachers within earshot of that were going to say, you know, that isn't very Christian-like. That doesn't sound very loving to me, they might say. One reason that the world and the false teachers can get by with this is because they've, they've completely perverted the term love. 
They've hijacked the idea of God's love. They've redefined God's love to mean something other than what God intended the word to mean. So in response, John the Apostle provides the church a true definition of God's love. Then he shows us how that love was delivered to a fallen, sinful, rebellious world. Then he explains how it's demonstrated among God's people. So this sermon is titled, God's Love Defined, Delivered, and Demonstrated. But before beginning in verse 7, let's just take a moment to briefly expose a few of those false definitions of love. Love is a, a very dynamic term, even as found in the Bible. But there are some notions of love that our culture has embraced that don't in any way reflect love as it is revealed in the Bible. First, if you, if you didn't happen to be alive during the 1960s, you'll realize, you'll realize regardless that our culture often defines love as erotic expression of sexual intimacy. This is the type of love that is it's self-gratifying. It's loving uh, this way that, that you're seeking to fulfill your own passions and your own lusts, your own desires. So when a person says to you that you're not showing me any love, it can mean that you aren't meeting my needs or satisfying my desires. You just aren't loving. They'll say, show me the love. The Greek term that would have been used to describe lustful passion during the period of the apostles is eros, from which the word erotic developed. Enough said there. This is not biblical or godly love, and how do we know that? That term eros never appears in the Greek New Testament. It is not there. Not even in describing the intimacy between a husband and a wife does God use that term as the apostles write. So when the culture claims, you know, that we're not showing them that love, never commanded to. Secondly, the world sometimes defines love as license. License means permission to sin. When they demand this love from a Christian, they incorrectly declare that, you know, God happily overlooks sin, deliberate sin even. So if you're godly, if you're godlike, then you have to overlook my conscious deliberate sin as well. And they declare, if you're going to act like a Christian, you have to love me just as I am. But the Bible never says that God overlooks open, deliberate sin. Actually, quite the opposite. In fact, licentiousness... License to sin is universally condemned in Scripture. Our Lord's brother Jude writes to the church, again, this is in the context of false teachers, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those are the false teachers that crept into the church. And he says, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says this in verse 11, 
I wrote to you not to associate with any quote-unquote so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. doesn't mean you don't eat Thanksgiving dinner with Uncle Louie, who's not a believer. Unbelievers are a different context. But any so-called brother who says, I am a Christian, holds up the name of Christ, yet they live a life of licentiousness, Paul says, don't even eat with such a person. So God's love, in, in, in God's eyes, love is not erotic. It's not blind license to sin. Let's look at one more. A third way that the world incorrectly defines God's love is religious pluralism. That is, no matter what you believe they will say, it doesn't matter as long as you're sincere. And if you're truly loving, you would not ever challenge that person's false ideas about God, nor tell them that they must trust in Christ to be saved from their sins. That wouldn't be loving, people might say. But what do we know what love is? We know that the Bible clearly teaches uh, concerning Christ, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that is given among men by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 So God's love does not in any way affirm religious pluralism or multiple ways to God. It's only through His Son. So these are just a few aberrant ideas about love that, that you and I will encounter that we'll face every day and we can expect that the Apostle John also anticipated that the people reading his letter were going to encounter this. So after calling out these false teachers, quite harshly as he did, John takes a deliberate action now of defining God's love for the church before anybody has a chance to call him unloving. So they'll know what love is. They can be encouraged whether or not they are truly Loving as God loves. So look with me at verse 7. Stay close to the text here. We're going to stay, in, stay close to this. And uh, we will observe first God's command to love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So we know that God is love. What does that mean? Does it mean that, that God is, is so gooey and weak in the need towards humanity that, that He loves everybody so much that He would never send anyone to hell? No. We know clearly that God will condemn people to hell. In fact, Jesus says Himself in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 that most will end up in hell. He says, the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many, many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So no matter how you want to interpret many or few, we don't, Jesus didn't put a number on it, but many will not be redeemed. A few will. But what verse 7 does mean is that it is God's very nature to love. Love for Him doesn't mean pluralism. 
It doesn't mean tolerance of sin. It doesn't mean love as it was defined in the 60s at all. The phrase God is love in this context means that He cares enough to provide a means of reconciliation between a fallen, sinful, rebellious humanity and Himself. We'll learn in a few moments that it is redemptive love. But what we can also find is that the redemptive love is not universal, looking at this text. And it's not shared by all humanity. It's actually very, very exclusive. Notice how verse 7 says, Everyone who loves is born of God. Born of God. Born of God is meant to describe the spiritual rebirth, the regenerating of the indwelling Holy Spirit, when a person comes to faith in Christ. That, John says, is essential to love. Everyone who loves is born again. That means if you are not born again, you cannot, in God's eyes, love. Because everyone who loves is born of God. In God's eyes, you cannot love uh, if you're not born again because you don't know the one who loves. Everyone who does is born of God. Everyone who does love is born of God. So being born again is a spiritual prerequisite to expressing biblical love. Unbelievers can't do that. They're not born of God. Now that doesn't mean an unbeliever can't fornicate. It doesn't mean that they can't tolerate, blindly tolerate people's sins. What it does mean is when they do that, they're not demonstrating God's love. That's not godly love. Unbelievers demonstrate that type of thing all the time. Yet they're not born of God. They're not born again. So I expect you you can understand what verse 7 is saying here. Unbelievers are perfectly able and, and suited to display all types of love, at least as the world defines love, but they're not loving in God's eyes. They're liars because they have perverted love into something that God himself never intended love to be. You must be born again to experience and to express God's love. Because everyone who loves is born of God. And in addition, verse 7 assures us that love originates in God. Its source is in God. It says, Beloved, let us love one another For love is from God. Love doesn't originate from man. What originates from man is sin. That's what originates from a natural natural fallen man. He doesn't doesn't love. Man, Man enjoys sin. But man becomes enabled by the spiritual rebirth through the Holy Spirit to love God. Love's origin then is supernatural. Love is supernatural. It is something that not naturally comes from us. It is something that is supernaturally given from God. Love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God. Anyone then who is not yet born of God, as we said, hasn't received yet the Spirit of God, categorically, they cannot love. So what is love? Verse 9 says... 
By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. Here, love is defined. For God, love is not merely an emotion. It's not merely a feeling. It is a deliberate act of sending his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him and that we might have life. Jesus said, I've not come. I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly, right? He came so that we might have life. So the love of God is the eternal life that is offered through Christ Jesus. And apart from Christ, there's no eternal life. It's exclusive. In fact, there's no life at all apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 5.40, You are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that who shall ever believe in him will not perish, but has everlasting life. Right? Those who do not know Christ don't have life. They're dead. And you might be here today, you might have a heartbeat, you might have driven yourself into church, you might uh, physically be in good health, according to the doctor, how he measures your parameters physically, but you could still be spiritually dead in your sins. Spiritually dead means that you're separated from God, that, that you need cleansing, you're separated from eternal life. Because God is pure, He is holy, that's why it was such a scene for Israel to approach him on the Day of Atonement. He is holy and pure. We're polluted and disobedient. That's what we are. We're sinners. We all need cleansing. Our sin separates us from that life. So previous to receiving that life which Christ offers, everyone is spiritually dead. And, and, and we lack the capacity to live for or to love God. Listen to this in, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions, that means sins, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile towards us, and again, he has taken it away, having nailed it to the cross. Ephesians 2, verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, it says, He made us alive together with Christ. Amen. Notice again, it's God's great love with which He loved us, making us alive in Christ. We were spiritually dead in our sins, had no relationship with Him, and we were spiritually separated from God, deserved of condemnation, and because we're spiritually dead prior to, again, spiritual regeneration of the heart, we're unable to save ourselves. We are completely unable to save ourselves. Do you want to know what God's love looks like? 
doesn't look like anything that you and I will find in culture. Listen to Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is God's love. We were helpless, it says. We were sinners. So how was God's love then delivered to a sinful, rebellious, spiritually dead, rebellious race? Verse 10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. Here we find clarification to just how loving God is and how He delivered His mercy and love to us. You know, it's most common for us to jump immediately to the portion of this verse that, that tells us that God sent His Son, right? We, we focus in on that, all of our attention, but there's much more to this verse that magnifies the grace and mercy of God. God's grace displayed is displayed in the fact that mankind did not love God. Sinful man before spiritual rebirth doesn't love God. Fallen sinful man only loves self. That's what the unbeliever loves is himself. So, so God didn't send his son to die in some form of, of reciprocating response to the love that we're offering him. No, God's, God's love isn't a response to our love and our affection towards God. Because we in our natural unsaved state, we don't love God. We offend God all the time through sinning. Prior to cleansing of Christ, all we do is offend God. In fact, until He's regenerated our hearts and made us alive, we can't please God at all. Anything that we do previous to conversion is filthy rags to God. Think that God, uh, to think that God is somehow impressed or, or somehow in awe of what we have done? Oh no. He's offended by what we have done. That's why he had to send his son. No, especially in our unredeemed state, God's not impressed with you or with me or anybody else on the planet. Back to Ephesians chapter 2. Here it describes every single one of us prior to our spiritual conversion, our spiritual rebirth, before we were born of God. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's what we were. And he goes on, Among them too, the disobedient, we, meaning Christians, we also formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of 
wrath. We were by nature people of wrath before conversion. There was nothing good in any of us that God was responding to when God sent his love to us. Uh, God's gift of salvation isn't a response to man's goodness. No, our nature is rebellion. Our hearts were dark, we were deceitful, but God's expressed his love toward us anyhow. That is grace. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us, again, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And upon God regenerating our depraved hearts by the Holy Spirit, while we were still dead unable to love God, unable to save ourselves, or worship in any capacity, He then made us alive to Christ through changing our hearts with the Holy Spirit. And Colossians chapter 1.13 says, at that very moment, when He changed your heart, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. He rescued us from the domain of darkness in which we were living, and He transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's what He did. That's the grace of God. You and I didn't do anything to deserve it. God was not reciprocating something cute that we did. Redemption is 100% about God. We were dead in our sins. God caused us to become alive and then be recreated into a whole new creation to worship Him. He who is in Christ is a new creation. So redemption is about God. Salvation is about God. It's not about us. It's about Him receiving glory for what He has done for us. And Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And in fact, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 tells us this. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And in love, get that, in love it says, He predestined us as adoption to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. In love, He chose us before the foundation of the world. There was nothing cute that we were doing. I don't know anyone here that was present before the foundation of the world. So salvation is all about Him receiving His glory for what He has done. And You know, I'm always impressed by people who dare to rob God of some of the credit for salvation. Uh, insisting, insisting that somehow they had some role in their salvation. Somehow I did something that impressed him, and that's the reason that he reciprocated to me. No. No. It, it isn't that somehow you finally got wiser than your siblings or the neighbor down the street, 
and finally decided to choose God. No, you didn't. You were dead in your sins, unable to save yourself, Scripture says. The only thing that we chose to do while we were unsaved was to sin. That's all we chose. That was our nature. We were children of wrath. And, and I realize that some will, will lament. They'll say, no, I know I chose God. Well, I chose God too. But not until after he had chosen me and changed my heart. And then I was born and made alive to him. Scripture says it is the same with all who are born of God. Others might say this. It's a very valid question. Well, you must think that you're pretty special. fact that God chose you and all. No. There's nothing special about me. Absolutely nothing. In fact, if I were God, I would not have chose me. I know what my acts were and what my behavior were and what my mind was before salvation and what sin even remains, the nature that remains even after salvation. I would have never chosen me. So why did God choose you and me to receive His Spirit and to be reborn again? Out of seven billion people on the planet, Why did He choose you? Why did He choose me? I have no earthly idea. Why would He choose me? I wouldn't have chosen me. But I do know one thing. He saved me from myself, and He saved me from going to hell. And the fact that He chose me for no reason at all makes me want to bow and worship Him for the mighty God that He is. He saved me from myself. It causes me to love Him. This is the basics of the doctrine of election. Scripture calls us God's elect. Romans 8.33 Jesus Himself, Luke 18.7 called us His elect. And He said, You didn't choose me. I chose you. The biblical reality that God chose you doesn't cause a Christian to boast in pride. The doctrine of election doesn't cause us to be, oh, God chose me. No. When you understand it and just how sinful we were and what our destiny was, uh, this doctrine causes us to be humble and receive God's grace in reverence and worship Him. Let's look even closer at God's delivery of this love in verse 10. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus, as He was beaten and bruised and crushed for our iniquities, became the one and only satisfaction for our sins. The word propitiation means satisfaction. Um, It gives this idea of someone who was previously unfavorable to God, now has found favor in God. God is now satisfied through Christ, not through us. Romans 3.23 says this, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? Everyone knows that one? Continue on. Being justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly 
as a propitiation in his blood. Another form of this same word that we we translate propitiation in Romans 3, it's translated in Hebrews 9, 5 as mercy seat. Again, the mercy seat was a portion of the ark where the high priest would come in and he'd dip his finger in that blood and he would spatter it to cover the mercy seat, to cover the sins of Israel from year to year. They had to go in once a year to do this. It was a shadow or a reflection of what was to come, Colossians chapter 2 says, in fulfillment of Christ. So, how is Christ the satisfaction? How is He the propitiation for our sins? Christ's blood was shed. Christ was splattered for you. That, dear friends, is God's love delivered to a corrupt, a sinful, a unworthy people. And verse 11 says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Wow. And when God calls us to love one another, you know, it becomes very clear from this context that uh, God's communicating to us that, that love demonstrated... It isn't some kind of warm, fuzzy, mystical, emotional type feeling. Uh, We all experience emotions and they're very real. But that's not what love is. It's a response to love. God's love is demonstrated via tangible and very valuable sacrifice. That is love. And it's pretty easy to see that, that if it doesn't cost you something, if it isn't precious, if it doesn't hurt, to give it up? If it doesn't hurt a little bit, it's not love. God's love cost. So in demonstrating God's love, verse 12, in a nutshell, here's the point of the next three verses. People are going to see it. People are going to be able to see it. They're going to notice. It's going to be undeniable. Verse 12 says, No one has seen God At any time, if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. We have seen it and testify. No one can actually see God God is spirit. God has to make himself manifest in some way in order for us to visibly see him. Even Moses, he was not permitted to see God face to face, remember? God said, I'm going to place you into the cleft of the rock and I'm going to pass by and you will see my train, my back as I pass by. That's what Moses got to see in a veiled way. Um. God's glory is always veiled in some way. Even with Christ, who it says is the, um, the image of the invisible God, even Christ was veiled in flesh. He was veiled in some way so he could have relationship with us while he was on earth during his three-year ministry. 
But sinful man, we can't see God in our natural state. He is spirit. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, God dwells in unapproachable light. It's an amazing thing to see God. But how can people visibly see God? It's when God's love is demonstrated sacrificially, painfully towards others. When we love with God's love, verse 14 says that we testify that the Father has sent the Son into the world to be the Savior of the world. That is our demonstration of love. It is our testimony of God. God's love is tangible. It is sacrifice. It's real. It hurts. We learned just a couple weeks ago, and John definitely is carrying over this same thought from the end of chapter 3. If you were here two weeks ago, we talked about how our love is demonstrated, especially in a special sense towards other Christians, who James tells us might be a brother or a sister in need of food or in clothing. You remember that passage? We demonstrate love and compassion towards them. When we do that, when we give to those who are in need, especially in the body, it says that God is seen. God is visible. And we testify to Him as we do that. So divine love isn't, isn't just empty sentiment. It's not just a cheer from the sideline when there's a touchdown. It's not even just a, a pat on the backside when you, when you do a good job at work. The world does all that stuff. What they don't typically do is costly sacrifice. At least if the cameras aren't rolling somewhere to capture the moment. But God's love by nature is sacrificial. It resembles the price paid at the cross. And it costs, it is painful, and it hurts. Text says the world won't be able to deny it. It's visible. And your neighbors will wonder... Uh, how come you come to uh, have the church's mower all tore apart in your driveway fixing it? And they'll walk over to you and look at you working on that mower. And they'll say, hey, I've driven by your church and I've seen you out there riding on that mower. And that church lawn looks immaculate. Why doesn't your own lawn look good? That's what they'll say. Why do you worry more about the church, meaning the body of Christ and how it's represented, even then yourself. They don't get that. They'd be the first one to hire a professional to come into their yard and measure every blade of grass, wouldn't they? They wonder why they see you heading out early to church in the morning, even earlier to go to an early Bible study, when there's perfectly good fish to be caught out of the intercoastal. They don't get it, but it's visible. In fact, they wonder why you might get excited about spending your only two weeks vacation from your job in order to go overseas and get food and clothing to people who don't have enough by, and at the same time provide Bible teaching to them. They'll look at that. They're like, man, I'm going to spend my two weeks in Hawaii. But it's visible. It's visible to them, and we testify to them that it costs. And they see it. They don't believe it because they're dead in their sins. Doesn't make any sense. They'll just shake their heads. I don't know about that guy. I don't know about that girl. Till one day, through your prayers, through your testimony, that God decides himself to open up 
their heart to the gospel. Suddenly it dawns on them that Christ died for me too. And then they choose to follow him. I'm going to ask the men to come forward to distribute the Lord's Supper. It's a ceremony and a celebration of remembrance of what Christ has done for us at the cross. We remember how Christ himself was splattered for us. How he was punished for us. How he was broken to heal us. Isaiah 53 verses 5 and 6 tell us, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. If you're new to Port St. Lucie Bible Church or if you're a visitor, we practice open communion here. That means that if you have trusted in Christ, that you have received him as your Lord and Savior, that we invite you to join us in the Lord's Supper. We're told this is also a time of reflection on our own sinfulness, opportunity, some people say to get things right with God, to confess, to reflect upon ourselves and return to Him. So we'll provide a moment for reflection as we distribute the elements. Nathan, would you pray for the bread, please? As the bread asked, would you sing one verse of Have Thine Own Way, Lord, Have Thine Own Way. Have Thine Own Way in which he was betrayed after he had given thanks the Lord Jesus took the bread he said this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me Bob would you pray before distributing the cup As the element is being passed, would you sing together two verses, Just As I Am, without one plea? Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed,
Hebrews 9.11 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered into the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling uh, those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? The same way he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. There is a place to put your cup down in the book rack. Let's pray. Dear Father, we're reminded how mighty you are and Lord, how you even formed man out of the dust of the ground. That where there was no life, Lord, that you made life and that you created flesh, you created bone, you created organ, Lord, you created our hearts. Lord, we're so thankful that you've recreated our hearts that you have made us spiritually alive to you Lord God so we can worship you in spirit and truth that we can worship through the blood of Christ through the sacrifice that that he made upon us Lord your beloved son we love him and we worship him it's in his name we pray amen Lord bless you and keep you the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Go in peace. Serve the king.